There's a verb that means to throw someone through a window. Yeah, defenestrate. Wow. Nice. Yes. Language is cool. You from were defenestrated. Weird, yeah. It's the, got it's defenestration shocking non. <laughs> it's gotta be from yeah, from the original German. <laughs> yes. The conclusion the thirty syllable word that means six full sentences. So the conclusion of die hard, it ends in defenestration. Makes sense. Oh, so did the uh the rockers of Marty Gennetti and uh Shawn Michaels. Man, there's a lot of movies and uh cultural phenomena that involve the defenestration. Uh yep. basically every western ever made. Does this movie have a defenestration? Is is anyone different? I don't believe I don't, so. I don't believe so. No. Uh, um, the violence is pretty limited, honestly. Well, yeah, it doesn't. Need when it, it hits, it hits. Who boy does it? I, uh, you know, I've been through a good, and I'm sure you have as well. Been through a good chunk of Arkansas. Yes, but I don't know that I've ever seen any part of Arkansas that looks like looks like Missouri. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does look more Missouri esque and it Eastern Oklahoma esque. Yeah. So. Uh, Real quick, Gina Davis made Brad Pitt. There is no Brad Pitt without Gina Davis. Correct. Uh, literally, they read so many people for Hot Cowboy, including some people that were already pretty big stars. George Clooney read for this part five times. Mm, wow. Uh, Gina Davis said, give me that hunk. Mm. Give me that oaky hunk. <laughs> and so a so career was born. Good call. So welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. We gather on a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss. If you're going to be implementing the female gaze, let a lady pick the hot bod. That's probably a good call. And uh, we talk about those films using film theory, like the gaze theory, uh, to discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film size course. This week's film, continuing our all, I Dream of Gina. I bet it all about Gina. I don't know why. I Dream of Gina. It is all about Gina. Marathon, in which we follow the film career of Gina Davis, and we're looking at uh, the Ridley Scott-directed film Thelma and Louise, also starring Susan Sarandon. We were so close. 1990. This film, Silence of the Lambs. Same year. Both nominated for a dickload of Academy Awards. We were this close in 1990 to cresting genre cinema into, like, mm. golden peak years. We missed it. And then what happened? Who knows? Who can be sure? We'll figure it out. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But, uh, yeah, we're so glad to be here. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I don't know who I am anymore. Uh, for the purposes of this show, I'll be Dalton, though. There you go. I'll be Dalton today. Yeah, I can do that. You be Dalton. Yeah. It's I'll the be only, Arthur. It's the person I have the most practice being. Can you be Dalton, but only less... Dustin, I have tried every day of my <laughs> life since I was a wee boy. I'm going to be John Malkovich. <laughs> I mean, if you can be anybody, be John Malkovich. For 15 minutes at a time. Uh, goodness. You only won in those sample chunks. Trust me, if you try to go longer than 15 <laughs> minutes, shit gets thing screwy. he will know is my hot, stinking breath on his neck. That's John Malkovich and uh, The Man in the Iron Mask. Ah. I haven't seen that movie in a while. Here's the thing. That was both a bad Malkovich and a great Malkovich, which is... Very impressive. Yeah, I was just doing the line, honestly. But you got the cadence down. Yeah, and that's the cadence. Very important. So yeah, we're here to talk about uh, Thelma and Louise. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited about this. So what we do when we do that is we do um, not avoid spoilers because this is a analysis show, not a review show. Nope. And so that means uh, that we will be spoiled. I mean, it's, it's one of the most iconic endings in all of cinema, so I think probably you know how this goes. Well, look, I knew how it went, and I was still not prepared for it because I didn't know how it was shot, which it is... Incredibly insane, yeah. Um, we'll talk more about that, but we'll 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 sort of lightly tread our way into spoiler territory. We don't jump in with both feet. So what we do is we do a synopsis, which is spoiler free, and then we work our well spoiler ads light. Then we do our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which is just a little bit more spoilery. Then we start expanding the syllabus about how we might use this film as a teaching tool, and that will involve uh, more uh, moderate spoilers and then severe spoiler territory. We get into when we get down to business. So there severe you spoiler territory. Yes, it's very severe. It's a severe spoilage um, that's going on. That, that that banana should not be even eaten in bread at that point. That's how spoiled it is. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that means. That was so folksy, and I loved it. Oh, well, you know, I, I've been hanging out with a lot of Southwest Oklahoma people lately. Buddy, this movie uh, mm -hmm. alone, uh, for I, I watched this right before bed, but for the 30 minutes I was awake after this movie, couldn't stop. Was, yeah, uh, thick was the draw. Country as a hayseed. Mm. So uh, anyway, uh, that's what's going to happen. Let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, please, though, uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, please. Louise is working in a diner as a waitress and has some problems with her boyfriend, Jimmy, who, as a musician, is always on the road. Thelma is married to Daryl, who likes his wife to stay quiet in the kitchen so that he can watch football on TV. Don't watch football. One day they decide to break out of their normal life and jump in the car and hit the road. Their journey, however, turns into a flight when Louise kills a man who threatened to rape Thelma. They decide to go to Mexico, but soon 
They are hunted by American police. I picked this up from IMDb. This was from uh, Harold Mayer on uh, on the IMDb. Thanks, Harold, so, uh, for specifying. But a, I think that so, nails most of it. Yeah, that's hits the points. Yeah. Uh, at some point, they uh, they get conned out of some money in a hotel in Oklahoma City. Mm. So uh, shout out to us. Oh, woo, it was woo. so nice. We on, got on, up on Northwest Twenty Third, right? Uh, northeast. 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 As northeast. soon as he said Northeast, I was like, Ooh, you should have gone Northwest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Ooh, nothing past like the capital, but <laughs> nothing past the capital, but uh, a lot of sadness. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that was fun. I don't think there's any hotels on Northwest Twenty Northeast Twenty Third Street, though. Not anymore. Well, yeah, we should go over there and find out. No, well, we should. Uh, I'll tell you what, though, uh, we were talking about how this movie doesn't look uh, a bit like Arkansas. Kind of look like Oklahoma City for a little bit. Does indeed. It does indeed. It definitely looks like that. New Mexico and Arizona. Hell yeah, it does for sure. Well, <laughs> you can't fake that shit. You go. It's Monument Valley. It's very, very John Ford. There. Yeah. Oh God, is it? We're going to talk about that a lot. So uh, let's do what we do then. Let's talk about whether or not we like this movie. I have seen it once and have almost no memory uh, coming in. You two were both virgin viewers of the film, so I'm going to you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Do you like Thelma and Louise? Why or why not? It's one of those movies that's entered the zeitgeist of the early '90s. So the ending I knew, uh, obviously, it was riffed on numerous times with Seinfeld, The Simpsons, at all. Um, but uh, I was so a little. I was excited to watch it, but I wasn't sure. Uh, I dug it quite a bit. I, I really did. And uh, you know, I give Ridley Scott a lot of crap, um, and I still will uh, from here on out. But I, I tell you what, when the man is on, he's on. Mm-hmm. Um, so good uh, visually as a storyteller. Um, He's got that, uh, I, I, what I really appreciate that about this movie, it has that kind of gritty, very independent look to it, uh, which I think is what excels and uh, elevates Alien and even Blade Runner. There's that kind of gritty uh, quality to the photography, and, and I, I appreciate that style uh, meshing with this kind of Western road buddy movie. You know what he watched to uh, kind of get in the uh, visual headspace? What? Badlands. Oh, checks out. Yeah, cool. right. Definitely checks out. It's a good... Uh, good pairing with this film. Well, as soon as you start talking about the ways in which it's gritty I w- and the the style, I was like, "Oh, we got to talk about this real quick." But uh, uh, what's what's what? It, several things I love about this. One, uh, this is the third Gina Davis film we've seen uh, in as many weeks, and she uh, third different performance. Right, this is a completely different performance than uh, her character in A League of Their Own and her character in The Fly. Um, and so just to see her range uh, over the course of the film and, and the way this is scripted, and so as far as seeing her kind of break out of the shell of the the lockdown housewife who faces down tragedy and then from that blooms into something completely different and for both characters i think but more so for thelma uh is just interesting to watch play out um it moves pretty well i mean it's two a little over two hours and i think for the most part it 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 goes and i i, I think there's enough of a little build up to them leaving uh, and then into that inciting incident, which puts them on the run, and, and that is all handled, I think, very well. Um, the, you know, they're just trying to have fun. They're just wanting to hang out, kick back, and man, all these damn men, all these yeah, all these white men just ruining you know, every step of the way. Can't escape it. Can't escape it. They are ran down by the end of this film with more white men. Um, and now we're here talking about it. Yes, three white men are talking about how bad. Uh, we are as a species. Um, but here we are. Uh, Correct. So, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate all that about this film. I, I think it's a very smart script. I, I really like it. Two strong performance. I mean, four strong performances. I mean, Brad yeah. Pitt's a great. Uh, he's got this boyishness. You know, it's one of his first breakout roles. And, and he reminded me a lot of Leo DiCaprio here, young Leo. That how? kind of whimsical he's, element. He looks so young and plays so young. Did you Do you know how old he was when they shot this? I looked it up, which is why I'm asking, because I was shocked. I'd say he was probably 27. Oh, fuck, you nailed it. Yeah, I would have guessed. I mean, and thinking about his career and how old he is now, I should have yeah. parsed that together. He looks like 22. Oh, yeah. I would have assumed he was much younger, but yeah, he's, God, he's like 27. He's just jacked here, too. Oh, so cut. Yeah. Man, yes. he looks great. He already looks like Tyler Durden. Oh yeah, uh, and so man, Brad's great. But Harvey Keitel is another one you mm. mentioned. I think off air how you know how nuanced and layered that performance is, and, and I love Harvey, and I love that we don't get to see Harvey really interact face to face with Thelma and Louise. I, I like that that yeah. separation. I like when a movie does that to keep these kind of main characters apart for the duration, and really adds. Uh, an interesting dynamic to a script, I think, when you can manage that. Um, shout out to uh, Christopher McDonald, uh, Shooter yeah. McGavin. Oh, oh, Christopher McDonald, always uh, showing up to play a douchebag yeah. in a pinch. I've been watching uh, Mr. Iglesias on uh, Netflix, and oh, he's yeah. a uh, he's the football coach. 
uh, in that. Of course he is. Oh yeah, and you know, doing exactly what you'd expect him to do, and it's a lot of fun. But he's uh, good at it. I appreciate him. I I think his accent and acting is a little too much here, but he's still fun to see. Uh, Stephen Tobolowsky is is great. Oh, Tobolowsky's so good in this. Uh, it's a much kind of drier performance here, and I I, I really dig that. Um, yeah, it's just, this is stacked to the gills of character actors, dude. Yeah, I, I, if I was rating, you know, if I was going to put it on a star scale, I, I'd say four out of five. I, I think there's something there. I think it's hitting the cusp of something, um, you know, of a masterpiece or something great. I, I think it just can't quite get over that hill for whatever reason. I can't put my finger on it. Um, but, I mean, it's easily rewatchable, super prescient, super relevant to, to today's, you know, world that we live in, and maybe even more so it feels like now than, than then, but... Also, it's the the flip side, you know, when we talk about movies that still deal with race in 2019, um, to see something like this that we're still dealing with these issues, they're still so prevalent in the world. Um, oh, I, you know, I, I, I dig it a lot, and I'm really glad we got to visit it. Um, and, yeah, I, just the, from the, the direction, the acting, I, I mostly top marks across the board for me. All right, very good, very good. Thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you have to say about whether or not you like Thelma and Louise? Oh, this is a good movie. Uh, Arthur talked a lot about the screenplay, and I'm going to as well. It's uh, Callie Corey uh, is the screenwriter, and damn, is the screenplay good. She just like establishes so quickly everything that we need to know about kind of the core characters. Uh, the introduction of Daryl is so effective. Like we don't, we know everything we need to know about Daryl in one scene, and that's incredible. Yeah. We know everything we know about Daryl. From Davis's performance before we even see Daryl. Fuck right, yeah. She's yeah. just like so. I mean, the trepidation to go, yes, because she knows she shouldn't yell, but she also knows if she doesn't warn him that he's going to be late, she's probably going to get yelled at anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's a lose lose for her, and, and the way that's played in the yeah the scripting is, is brilliant there. Yeah, it's it, whew, you're right. Davis is so good there, but yeah, this screenplay has just got a real economy to it, and uh, Arthur, as you said, like it flies by. I mean, the, this the screenplay just moves. And, you know, we, we don't talk a lot about the writing on this show just because you can never know, right? It's like uh, trying to figure out what a building looks like from the blueprint. It just, it's it's not, it's not always a great place to go. But there are certain things, uh, we talked about a little bit, the Chinatown. Um, every once in a while, if a screenplay is just humming on all cylinders, we will talk about it. And I think this is a good place and a good time to talk about it because the misfortunes that they have throughout their journey are so mundane and regular. Like, nothing too out of the ordinary happens in this movie it's except for the fbi getting called and maybe we'll talk about whether or not that strains credulity later but every step of the way this this script is advancing both plot and character in really really impressive ways uh and it just consistently blew me away i, I was with you arthur i was like wow this is really great uh really good and maybe it's great and i can't tell until i found out that it was uh, part of the uh 400 finalists for the afi top 100 and didn't make it. And if you look at some of the shit that is on the top 100, yeah. you get this movie's a masterpiece. We I get... was thinking about that, too. And after I watched it, I was driving. I'm like, this really feels like it could have been on that list. It like, should be. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many There's so many proto-incel angry white dude movies from the 70s and 80s on the to AFI top 100. And a lot of them are great. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they're not good. I'm just saying we got it. We got enough of those stories. How many buddy road movies starring two women where the central like inciting incident is a discussion about sexual violence that doesn't feel like overly exploitative. Like there's just not any movies like Thelma and Louise, except for Thelma and Louise. I, I struggle to think of another one because it is what if a rape revenge movie was resolved within the first act and what happens after that is kind of the through line of it. And I just think it's so interesting. I can tell uh, you, you not just, I, I think you can tell, we can tell as viewers how much care went into the screenplay. Uh, uh, Callie Corey uh, was actually originally wanting to direct this. She was going to shoot it super cheap, super indie. And I think she knew Ridley Scott through some people, and he hired her for a gig called Thelma and Louise. And she's like, oh, shit. Well, yeah, I already wrote it, dude. I, I've already made this movie. And they worked on it for 10 years. It took it, – it's a miracle any movie gets made, but just even something like this, which seems like a surefire, two huge stars, big director – uh, made a bunch of money in the 90s, got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. You're like, oh, surely this was easy. No, it took them 10 damn years to get this movie off the ground. So uh, just learning about all the starts and stops in the production of this movie were really fascinating to me. And look, sometimes uh, the stars align and a movie that could have just been okay turns into something pretty spectacular. I think that's what Thelma Louise is. And we'll uh, we'll get more into that later. Um, 
Real quick, one more thing I wanted to point out. I, yeah. I meant to do it earlier. One of the things I really appreciate about this is, is I think, adds a lived-in element to this world are the, the characters in the backgrounds. Yeah. So there's a moment when we're in Daryl's house and, you know, there's a conversation with Kaitel in the, in the front of the screen. But way in the back, out of focus, you see a guy playing pinball. Right. With that, or, that pinball machine that's been in every shot of yeah. Daryl's house since. Yeah, yeah. it's so and good. And then later in the diner when uh, the Michael Madsen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they're when they're making out of the table, you kind of see the waitress in the background. And, talking uh, shit. Yeah, I, I really appreciate those little flourishes and touches. I think that adds so much to a, a, cinem, a cinema universe or world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's funny you talk about lived in. Um, there's also like a, a distinct movie lived in nature. Like the, the bar that they start this movie at looks like it could be down the road from the uh, bar at the start of Terminator 2. Like those bars are on the same drag oh, yeah. highway. Yeah. It's just like it's so evocative, like what the '90s thought the middle of nowhere looked like, and yet yeah, it's close enough that like it does give it that quality. The accent work in this is really good too. I feel like it's very good. Yeah. What Very, do you think, bud? I, I like it a lot. I, I do. I think it's really, really good. I'm not sure, but I'm willing to be convinced that it's great. I'm, I'm gonna I, try. You know, and but I'm because I don't have that same '90s nostalgia. I wonder how much weight that carries. Because hmm. as I watched that last scene, I felt like it was kind of hokey. I mean, I knew what was gonna happen with it. But I was I was kind of underwhelmed by it in a little bit. I I think that freeze frame might hinder it some, but I think yeah. the freeze frame echoes back to the opening shot of that still that freeze of the, frame with the Polaroid camera. Yeah, yeah, that and and I will say to me the score is really overly melodramatic. That was kind of yeah. one thing I was noticing. And I think that's just a sign of the times. Hans Zimmer, uh, baby. Yes. Young Hans Zimmer. Two in a row here, and I'm not impressed with either of them. And I think one of the failings for me is, I mean, I totally believe in Shooter McGavin, the evil, you know, uh, husband. I totally believe mm-hmm. in, um, you know, the cops and being bad. I believe in, you know, evil rapist Harlan and all, you know, and he's so oily and, you know, slimy. And I, you know, clocked that dude as soon as he walked on the screen. I knew what his deal was. And I believed in Brad Pitt. That sort of, I'm playing the nice guy, but I'm playing the nice guy so I can do what I want and get what I want. I mean, I believed in all those things. I didn't believe than the truck driver. Yeah, they, too, I, too cartoonish. Yeah, and, and, and I think that was sort of one of those missteps. That just, I mean, and that's what I want to say about them, is that the missteps are not that out of the out of the way it's just they're they're just enough to sort of pull it just off the cusp of greatness like you were saying earlier Arthur. Yeah. I'll, I'll make an argument for I guess we'll do it now maybe yeah. we'll get more into an analysis but I I don't know there's this point and I think it become comes before they really interact with the truck driver they I think they've seen him once on the road at this mm-hmm. point but uh, it's after uh, Thelma robs uh, that liquor store that gas station she says something about like oh shit I feel like the blinders are off like yeah is it just me or is like life in color now uh, and I don't know, maybe there, there's this, the film does get a little bit bigger and a little bit more cartoonish and a little bit more uh, yeah. Bonnie and Clyde on the run. Yeah, a little bit. But it's uh, maybe by design, right? Yeah. Like they have, they have officially like cast off the formalities of life. And instead of seeing uh, this man who's a creep, you see this cartoonish creep. Right. Right. Uh, whereas Harlan would not have been immediately clocked at the beginning of the movie. Now we would immediately clock his type, mm-hmm. right? Maybe yeah. that, that's my defense of it. Because yeah. I agree that it is a little cartoonish, but I think the entire second half of the movie kind of veers that way. Well, yeah, even with the cop in the in the getting in the trunk and then the biker coming by and so, blowing smoke into he, yeah, 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 the cyclist, the the cyclist <laughs> with the biggest hog's leg of a joint. I've ever seen in a 90s film, Hotbox. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that scene so completely funny. irrelevant. That scene is funny. Not, it's a great. But it doesn't belong there, yeah. I it, mean, it's just to show that, like, what world we're in now, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of gone to a new. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so the, they're just like itty bitty little missteps. Like, the, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to get to it. The, those little misstep scenes like that sort of just keep it just off that edge of just okay. being this incredible, incredible film. I still like it very much. And I mean, I think your AFI Top 100 argument um, is very convincing. But so I, I like it a lot. I love, the, I mean, the, the great strength. I love the wide shots and the way it, sh- um, you know, the, those things are really good. I really like the uh, car stunts, uh, especially mm. in the last chase scene. There's a real rawness and reality to them that doesn't feel um, like the super balletic moves that you see in like in a Fast and the Furious kind of movie. And, yeah. well, and even I, a grounded car chase like Bullet, right? Yeah. Like even something that, that because it's off-road and it's it's dirty and mm-hmm. this film understands the physics of going off-road. Yeah, and I, I thought that was really excellent. And of course the performances are great. Susan Sarandon is crushing it every step of the way. I feel all of her pain and all of her pathos <sighs> and all of her history. Oh, she's so and I mean all of that is just amazing. Michael Madsen is really good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's yeah. 
is. It's insane yeah. because he's. I've always felt like he was a little cartoonish. I don't love him in Reservoir Dogs. I don't either. You know. Yeah. And he's great uh, here. And uh, it's one of those moments where I'm like, okay, okay, you are somebody. Well, he's he's so good. And again, I know there's so much we're going to talk about with this, but like every time something comes up, we have seen so many toxic dudes before we meet Jimmy. And one of the first things we see is like Jimmy have well, not one of the first things, but an early scene of him and Louise interacting involves him getting violent, right? Yeah. And we're like, oh fuck, not it. And you see like Louise react the same way you, the audience is reacting. She's like, this guy, yet mm-hmm. another one, yeah. yeah, yet another one. And to see like Jimmy struggle with this performed like brooding angry masculinity that he doesn't even seem that comfortable with, right? But he yeah. just doesn't know any other way to access his yeah. feelings. Oh. It, Great performance. I love it. Love it. I love Car- Harvey Keitel. We've already said that. But there's one, again, one of those little small errors is I don't quite get the automatic belief, the automatic sort of benefit of the doubt that he gives. Um, from what we have at the scene, mm-hmm. we really don't have access. Or rather, we have access, but Keitel's character does not really seem to have access to the information that would be necessary for him to sort of assume and these, roll out. You know, and these girls on the run. Like his goodwill, I, I love it, and I, and I think it's a great nuance in the way he does that. And I think he's a very well lived in character. Um, the way he sees other characters, I think, is a, is a really great um, sort of cipher. The way he immediately understands Evil Shooter McGavin, the way he immediately understands uh, Brad Pitt, and I, adapts the way he's approaching them to. Spend specifically attack them yeah, yeah. I, I think that's all very very good yeah but what gets us to those assumptions is there is maybe a, a, a fault in the script just a little bit i just and maybe there was something on the cutting room floor that would help us out a little bit but that interaction with yeah. the bartender isn't quite enough for me to say oh he thinks these two girls killed this guy in self-defense and now don't know what to do honestly that interaction with the bartender is enough for me to be like literally any cop would have been like case closed yeah Case closed. This dude got shot by uh, a jealous husband. I'm, I'm moving on. Yeah, I'm like, just moving on. Yeah, we're not gonna. This is a red ball. We're not gonna solve it. Move so on. going to Thelma and Louise, and then yeah. uh, the assumption of innocence, or at least self defense of some nature. It it, it it does it does take me out of it just a hair. Mm-hmm. You know, just a hair again. The schmaltziness of the ending. But again, we're talking about performances right now. Lastly, Gina Davis, who makes this incredible transition from the meek and mild abused Farrah Fawcett character from Steel Magnolias to this country fried Jim Beam soaked version of a Valkyrie is amazing and i i love watching that transition it's happen. fucking transcendent and, and she yeah. i mean she makes you believe every single beat yep. of those moves and uh, i like that a lot yep. and so yeah overall I, I have a very 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 positive vibe towards it but i'm just not quite sure if we're quite to the cusp of greatness yeah. the, the, silence of the lambs another film from the same period here it it feels like a movie that has no missteps even though there's a couple, you know, really kind of tenured line deliveries, you know, Sergeant Tate, you know, or whatever you want to do. I'm a big fan of the Sergeant Tate line. <laughs> you know, it's Jim Pember. It's Pember, Jim Pember God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> like, there, there's a couple, but I, I, I believe those characters, but they just, they're sort of jarring when you yeah. add all the sophistication of Hannibal Lecter all the way through. Um, so they're, they're forgiven because they, they're believable in the moment, but they do feel like they're from something else. There are moments in this movie that feel like they're something else, and they don't really feel justified in the same kind of way if that makes sense um but thematically i think it's great i really enjoy it and uh, it's definitely a movie i'm excited to be talking about here with you guys so i guess that moves us to our transition moment let's expand the syllabus and so as we do that the the assignment is as it is every week is that you are now teaching um, in a film studies kind of course or some other sort of college level poli sci, you know, a history course, you know, any number of things. And this week's uh, class is dealing with Thelma, Thelma and Louise to some extent. Um, you can make the suggestion that Thelma and Louise is supplementary to other texts, but how would you go about that teaching responsibility using this and what other um, orbital texts would you use to do that? So I go to you first, Dalton Stewart. Do it out of order just to mix it up. Uh, how would you expand the syllabus? Ooh, uh, I struggle with this one a lot because I feel like there's a lot of roads you could go down with this. Uh, I thought a lot about buddy movies and road movies, and I decided that was not the direction I wanted to go. So I think we're just going to talk about uh, queer cinema in the 1990s, or rather, uh, big budget, because there's plenty of great queer cinema in the 90s, but there's a lot of big budget movies in the 90s that are coded gay as hell, mm-hmm. and uh, Hollywood was a bunch of cowards. Um do Thelma and Louise need to be gay? No, nah, not necessarily. But uh, there's a a closeness and an intimacy to their friendship that is so lived in and so real. 
that it is hard to not catch feelings for the two of them, I think. Um, so I just wanted to look at some other fil- films, and I, I think the films that I have picked are way gayer than this movie. Uh, but, you know, again, I think we're, we're, we're just drawing out, teasing out this through line of 90s cinema, uh, these ways we were having conversations and sometimes not even realizing we weren't having them. Uh, we're going to open with Fried Green Tomatoes. Uh, nice. The novel is explicitly gay. Uh, that that it's based on, but uh, Fried Green Tomatoes was the first film that came to mind for me as I was watching this because they they are so of a piece in their southernness uh, and their femaleness uh, and in their their supportive uh, friendships in the face of severe abuse, right? Uh, specifically, severe abuse at the hands of a a male dominated uh, justice system mm-hmm. and the inability for that justice system to provide justice for uh, women when they suffer at the hands of men. Um, so again, I, I think it's hard to not talk about these two films uh, in pairing just because of how close they come out to each other. I think uh, Thelma Louise gets released in 91 and I think Fragrant Amino is like 89. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're Very close. definitely speaking to a moment in in like the zeitgeist of Hollywood. Ooh, that's, there's that word again. Um, but yeah, we got to start there. Next, look, we don't talk about Dave Fincher on this uh, podcast a whole lot because when we started the show, I had only seen like uh, 50 movies, uh, and a lot of them were Dave Fincher movies. But it's been long enough now, I feel like we can take them out of the trash every once in a while. You got to talk about Fight Club, baby, and not just because of Brad Pitt, because of, ooh, how sexy that movie is and how bad it doesn't want to be sexy. Uh, and I don't know if that's because of... Uh, I, I, it's kind of hard to figure out where it comes from, right? Because I don't think anybody making Fight Club with the possible exception of Chuck Palahniuk, who wasn't out at the time he was writing that novel or when the film was being made. I don't know that anybody else like clocked the inherent uh, homoeroticism between the, the narrator and Tyler Durden uh, until it was released, because critics immediately were yeah. like, hey, uh, what's going on here with uh, the subtext? So I, I don't know. Nobody on the film talks about it a whole lot that I've seen. I was going to say, I, I just read the Fight Club chapter of the, the 1999 Best yeah, Movie You're Ever. Best Movie You're Ever, yeah. And uh, I think it's Fincher who, before the release, he he references something about the homoeroticism of the movie. Oh, okay. So he yeah. clocked it, too. Yeah. That's interesting. That's good to know. I'm, I'm glad. I, that makes me feel better about Fincher's, like, credentials as a smart guy, right? That he knew what was going on in there. Um, but again, I think in films like uh, Fried Green Tomatoes, Thelma and Louise, um, this close, intense... Uh, female intimacy, whether it's sexual or whether it's not. Um, again, Fried Green Tomatoes, even in the film, they kind of wink and nudge at it. And in Thelma and Louise, it's just, uh, it's never coded as sexual, really. Um, but regardless of that, it's supportive, right? And in Fight Club, that close, intimate male friendship is inherently combative. It is not supportive. It is all about domination. It is all about who is the coolest, who is the alpha, uh, who is the holder of this pecking order and when Thelma and Louise argue there is a real feeling of equalness even when Louise is mad at some dumb naive shit uh, Thelma's just done there's a supportiveness Uh, when the narrator does something dumb and naive uh, Tyler Durden berates him Um, and again I just think it's a really cool really interesting juxtaposition um, and uh, really really valuable Uh, last but certainly not least I'm not going to say much about it because we did a whole episode about it but point break uh, to, yeah. to round out, get us a second pair of guys in there, uh, point break. Um, last but not least, I wanted to get us out of movies. Let's expand the syllabus. It's not always about film. Uh, I have had several chances to mention this record lately, and I just haven't uh, either because I've forgotten or I thought the connection was tangential at best. Uh, but one of my favorite records of the year so far uh, is by the band Priests. It's called The Seduction of Kansas. Super, super good album. Uh, but I think the reason it's relevant here is it is all about the um, the ways in which Middle America has always dominated uh, America's like consciousness, at least since the you know the mid twentieth century, uh, and how it's kind of been this epicenter. But even prior to that, I mean, whether it's John Brown or whether it's the Koch brothers, Kansas has been the center of a lot of shit in American mm-hmm. history, uh, and it's kind of just this idea of how interesting is it that this this place in America that is kind of defined by being on the outsides of power, being on the outsides of economic uh, riches um, has still been the center of a lot of hateful shit and also a lot of progressive stuff. It's just really interesting and about the ways in which we tell each other lies. And it's a great record, and uh, I think it's got real Thelma and Louise vibes. I think you should check it out. Awesome, awesome. Very good, very good. Well, hey, Arthur. So well, how would this module look if you were teaching it? I, I think I'd really hone in on that idea and element of... You know, it's said multiple times, you, you get what you settle for. Mm. 
and and really what you know Thelma and Louise are fleeing. I mean, other than you know the obviously you know surface level murder charges, uh, but they're just I mean they're fleeing that suburban life. I mean, getting away from this heteronormative husband wife pairings and, and getting out of small town Arkansas where you work at a diner and or you're a housewife and, and living life uh, on a level even if that means becoming criminal in some way. And so to tap into that, I think I would start with uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Hell yeah. And, and with that, I'd also go with Old Man and the Gun. Mm. And I think Old Man and nice. the Gun more so really wrestles with that idea as, as well as, you know, settling down into this normal nine to five style life. Um, for some people, there's there's just chains beholden with that. And not everybody's designed that way. And I think both of those films really. You know, work at that when when Butch and and Sundance try to go straight, they they can't, they can't get away, um, and, and I really think that's where we are here. I, you know, I don't know if this movie goes another way. You know, I don't know if Thelma and Louise, if they tried to quote unquote settle down, if they could after this experiences that they've had on the road, uh, and then with that uh, to kind of also just tap into some of that uh, Middle America suburban stuff. I, I'd go with Hell or High Water. Oh wow! Yeah, nice yeah. Play. Uh, yeah I very think good. really that, takes the economic subtext of this movie and makes it text. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think again you you've got similar characters there who, and, and for them they're just trying to survive in, in a very desolate place. And sadly, in you know 2017 or whatever it is, um, I, I think that's an, another element to, to capture. And, and then finally, uh, with Oklahoma City is the crossroads of America and on the run. I think you got to wrap it up with Logan. And damn it, I really <laughs> keep waiting for you to say Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, but you no, keep throwing no. me a curveball, yeah, dog. I, I mean, like it. I do yeah. like that. I, I think Logan is another one. You know, he's an, a, a man on the run trying to escape this this life and, and trying to find a freedom that he does eventually find in, in escape and death. And, and so I, I think thematically it echoes a lot of what's happening here in Thelma and Louise. So those are the ones I would pair with, with this film. Those are great, Arthur. Hey, hey, friends. Oklahoma City, if nothing else, has uh, been a bastion for people on the run for a long time. Feel free. Feel yeah. free to come visit our, our beautiful city while you are on the run for, I, I hope, mostly justifiable crimes. Yes. Uh, justifiable armed robbery? Yeah. There's such a thing. I think so. There, yeah, In I mean, this economy? you got to be kidding me, I really, really needed that money. Have you yeah. seen the documentary, Hell or High Water? Because yeah. It really <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that, that documentary? Idea. That's uh, so funny. I, I think uh, I, I do want to stick on Body and Clyde for a second because there's something, and it's not even the film, it's actually a... Uh, Let's plug a much more popular, much more famous podcast. The last podcast on the left just did a three or four parter about Bonnie and Clyde. That's really good, but it hones in on what you were talking about, right, Arthur? Like Bonnie uh, Parker as a person, as a real person, not as a film character, uh, was sold this idea of fame and wanted it so bad. Wanted not just that fame, but wanted out of this middle America impoverished existence that she was going to do anything to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Uh, and the psychology of uh, Bonnie and Clyde is much more... Is, is Arthur Penn's film is very good and gets into it a little bit, but it's truth is stranger than fiction, I assure you. So that's one, one last addendum. Fair enough, fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, so I have... Rather than one very well thought out and fleshed out option, I've got two options. You guys can tell me which one. You can t I'll let them fight. You pick the winner. Okay? Ooh, okay. Okay. So option number one is female criminality itself. Mm. Um, this is a 1991 film, uh, one year prior to this. And I'd be curious to know to what extent uh, Hollywood execs are looking at what's happening in the news and deciding what they want to choose for uh, the, the projects they're going to finally greenlight. Um, I know there's a long, troubled history of, of getting this film finally to celluloid, um, but Eileen Mornos had been arrested just at this moment, and it was this sort of road movie sort of story. She's hitchhiking, uh, meeting these truckers, and um, you know executing them. There is a sort of subtext of history of rape um, that's part of it as well, and uh, there, I think, was a certain fascination with women who are doing very, very sort of masculine-coded kind of crimes. Mm. And so I wonder if that would be a thing, and maybe looking at uh, at least two of uh, Nick Broomfield's um, documentaries about Eileen Muros, mm. um, the one dealing just sort of the uh, diary of a serial killer, and then lastly the uh, the, the lead up to her execution. That's the one where she's really off the rails, right? Yeah, she, yeah. yeah really. She's having a hard time. Yeah, and I mean, 
is that last film exploitative? Oh, I, we could talk about a lot of smarter people have written a whole lot of words about those two documentaries, and they defend it, and they also uh, decry it. And I don't know where I fall. Honestly. I don't either. I, I really don't know what to say there. Have you seen both of them? Though? Yes, I have, wow. and I, I like them a lot. I mean, I think they are interesting. I've um, seen clips, but never the the full. Um, they're both available on Hulu. Last I saw, so if you're looking for some free watching, so that's a way to sort of get into this. What is that moment of what's going on there? I mean, just after that, we've got the Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss, and you know those kind of things happening as well. And so I don't. I, I'd be curious about the sort of early '90s um, thoughts on female criminality, and I don't know how I'd augment with that particular readings or not. Uh, but though that's a way to look at it. The other way to look at this, perhaps, is to think of Thelma. Louise as a little bit of an else world. It does seem very much grounded in the real world. Uh, a woman's not believed, you know. I mean, the, the great, you know, there's there there there's there's, there's two different responses to rape um, based on um, you know the binary version of gender here. That we should have given this at the top of the show, but yeah, we're gonna talk about the R word a lot this yeah, episode. It's gonna so. get, yeah, it's gonna get mentioned. I mean, it's a major sort of plot moment of the film, um, and so the woman's uh, fear is to not be believed. Um, the man's fear is to be emasculated by having been victimized, and it's, it's a different kind of thing. And so I, I was just thinking about that particular, you know, in, engaging in those particular questions mm. and, and, and not really dealing with other sides of it and this sort of very, very female-centric sort of conversation about criminality, about, uh, about abuse, and those kind of things. And it did make me think a little bit about, and I've talked about this movie before, Lizzie Borden's uh, Born in Flames, mm. uh, which it sort of envisions – possible socialist enclave within a already socialist United States that is dominated by women. It's a matriarchy and uh, their desires uh, for greater and greater justice and equality in the world. But the other Elseworlds kind of movie that I was thinking about is a very little scene and a not not amazing film. Uh, there's a John Travolta film from 1995 called White Man's Bird. Did anybody see White Man's Burden? That's uh, a hell of a title. Go on. Um, and White Man's Burden is just a reverse race world in which uh, the history of slavery is for white people. Yo, this is some real 90s shit. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? And, and John, Adding that to the list. God. John Travolta plays a factory worker who is imagined to have slided and be uppity um, to his black CEO boss and fuck? is unable to get uh, the... And, and it, it results in some acts of violence, and I won't spoil a whole lot of that movie because it is an, a really underseen movie. I don't know if it's a gem. I won't say underseen gem, but it's an underseen movie. That's, it's worth sounds worth talking yeah, about, no matter what. And so yeah. these impoverished, poor, you know, urban neighborhoods full of white kids and their heavy metal, and uh, it's just really sort of fascinating um, the way that some of the role reversals are worked out and the way in which I think it's trying to do a thing that maybe it fails to do, but the effort itself is probably worthwhile. And to sort of think about, you know, how do we reverse the roles, right? So Thelma and Louise are reversing the roles and authority of power and they are doing the crime spree duo, which is almost always, you know, two cowboys off doing their thing, but they're doing it in this sort of opposite kind of way. That is much more grounded in real world. And let's move this in to something much less grounded and discuss sort of the imaginative, imaginative possibilities of cinema. So I don't know which of those two I'd pick, you know, as a way to They're engage. They're both fascinating. They're both good. You also get to do, if you go the Elseworlds route, you get to do Kevin Wilmont's uh, Confederate States of America. Oh, yeah, yeah, CSA, right. so good. Uh, man, Kevin Wilmont's great. Uh, the, one of the screenwriters on Black Klansman, if uh, that mm -hmm. name doesn't immediately ring any bells for you, listener. Um, but, yeah, it's from, like, Mid aughts, yeah, I've seen the movie. I deep, really... deep Bush years, it's good. Yeah, and uh, they they use real products, you know, mm -hmm. that were racistly. Oh, but they don't tell you until the end of the until movie, until the which end is of the great. movie, which is great for these little ads that go on throughout. So it's something else. I, I like the women, the women in criminality, though. I think that's yeah. the direction you need to go. I think that's the one that wins for me. I, I think they're both great. Arthur, what about you? Man, I don't. I kind of like the Elseworlds thing. Elseworlds. Yeah. There you yeah. go. So, well, I mean, you well, I, got a split house. You got two classes you could teach on uh, Thelma and Louise alone. Two dude. different ones, yeah. I mean, and that shows the richness of this film, which is probably what brings us to a point where we've got to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. And that business is, as yeah. always, analysis. How mm. about that for a segue, guys? It's good. Yeah. We can go ahead and call it a night. That yeah, was so good. We mm. just did that thing. Uh, so, yes. I, let's talk about many things. 
Oh God! Yeah, where should we start? You want to, um, let's just talk about impressions first. I think that's sort of the biggie on the eye chart watching this movie in twenty nineteen. Yeah. Shit. Um, okay. Well, I didn't well, know where I mean, to start there. The uh, continual conversation. I mean, the the conversation that really drives the first half of this film is you know why they go on the run is you know they won't be believed because right. she's been seen dancing and a flirting with him and she's had it coming. And you're right. asking she's, for yeah, it by wearing that dress. You're asking for it by yeah. Louise playing into it. Louise gets that line. It's so you're right, Arthur, because the film revisits this, right? Because I think the film knows in 1991 it's got to keep telling the audience because the audience, a lot of the audience, uh, I think, well, I would say at least a fourth, if not more, of the audience is like, yep, that that checks out. But there's definitely going to be a, a different contingent in the audience who is so troubled by this uh, pair of nice people who've had to do a bad thing that they're not going to be able to square that idea. And Louise gets that line so early. The film is immediately, and in, in, I can't remember the exact line, but it's within a scene, does she say, go to the cops and do what exactly? Yeah. And then the film like puts it to bed for a couple of scenes. Yeah. Well, I, and I think the other great moment before that, while they're at the 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 bar uh the uh the dance hall um is you know she's Thelma's defending is oh he just wants to have fun and be silly and you know Louise, Louise sees knows. right through it she and knows. she calls her jaded because she's been a waitress for so long and I think that's a fascinating line that speaks a lot to that I mean masculinity in the especially I think probably in the south for mm -hmm. the 50s through the 80s I mean thinking about these At least. roadside diners where truckers are just, you know slapping waitresses butts or you know I think it evokes that mindset of that was probably pretty prevalent for a good percentage of those decades I yeah. know enough servers uh, and have waited tables in my life to know that Still stop. prevalent. Yeah, yeah still prevalent. Definitely a thing. I worked at Starbucks, and the the girls got uh, a lot more comments than I did. Man, yeah. you guys are fucking gross. Yeah. They are. It's it's It takes the context of uh, fiction sometimes uh, to show you the ways in which men are gross uh, by taking a gross behaviors that I think society teaches. And we're not going to take a detour into what it's like to be a dude for too long, but... I, Sometimes it takes fiction, right, to show like, hey, this thing you did, here's a character where that thing you did is their defining attribute, is the way in which they interact with women. And you're just going to have to now think about all the times where you've done something like similar to Shooter McGavin yelling at his wife for yelling at him. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're just going to need to think about that for the rest of your day. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's great. And I think it takes a screenplay from a, a woman sometimes to not, you know, take somebody who's not a dude to look in, in at that snow globe and see those things for what they are. Yeah, and I mean, in, and in 2018, 2019, we're still having those, you know, conversations, hashtag me too, or hashtag believe survivors and hashtag believe women, you know, and that's still such a dominant part of our discourse, especially, I think, in America and online, and is so tragic and yet so important. And, and this film really still speaks to that in so many ways and and I think it's defining uh and and somewhat uh you know required reading at this point in in, in many ways. Yeah, it's shocking to me because this movie is such a big hit, right? And, and again, maybe it does go to a conversation we have a lot on the show is like can commercial art actually affect change? And uh I think we, if the last 30 years have shown us anything, it's the answer is no. Because yeah. this is a big damn movie. Yeah, it is. This movie made a lot of money and was a cultural phenomenon. Everybody knew about this movie. And the fact that the premise of the film is predicated on a woman kills her friend's would-be rapist and flees because they know nobody will believe them. The fact that, yeah, they didn't start a conversation in 1990 is baffling. I mean, the, I mean, the question that's unanswerable is... Do we find ourselves in this place now where that conversation is much more prevalent? Does it get us, help us move the needle? And I don't know the answer to that, and I don't think we can. Well, I think think peace culture doesn't exist in 1991, right? I'm going to say, yeah, we're not online. Yeah, I mean, Roger Ebert. drastically changes everything. Yeah, somebody writes a review, and maybe three people mail into the uh, the newspaper to be like, well, I disagree with you, sir. Uh, but that's it. Then it's over, And as opposed to now where the weekend um, – Thelma and Louise comes out, there's going to be arguments about the the reviews. And then th three weeks after it's out, there's going to be a litany of think pieces, and everybody's going to be talking about the think pieces and whether or not they're valid. And, and you're going to have a whole you know subculture of alt-right incels who are going to be 
damning this movie and trying right. to influence its ratings on Rotten Tomatoes or what have you. I would love to show this movie to a bunch of red pillars and then just like talk to them afterwards. Mm-hmm. Nothing would make me happier. I'll do it. Yeah, I don't be, give a shit. I'll they, fight anybody. In the same vein, I think it goes back to your point. You know, last week we talked on a league of their own about how it's a movie that feels like it. You know, we talk about the white savior narrative and oh, we cured racism or we cured you know discrepancy in two hours. You know, where does this movie? You know, how does it? The only way to escape the patriarchy is death. Yeah. That's how this movie ends. That's why this movie is better than A League of Their Own. And th- I, I, I do think that is a better choice, yeah. Yeah. Again, I don't know about how it's shot. I'm still not sure. Ooh, well, I guess I'll... Maybe now's well, as good a time. Well, before we get to that, okay. because there is a, the second prescient bit, which is the assumption of excessive police violence. Gotcha. Yeah. You're right. And um, it, it, it does do that, that Harvey Keitel's character throughout is telling them, these guys are going to go too hard, too far. As soon as we start chasing them this way, um, they're just going to shoot them. And uh, I do, I mean, again, his sympathy for them, I'm not sure I believe, but I like the role of him sort of being the prophet of saying, if these guys get a chance to kill somebody, they're going to do it. I See, I think the thing that's interesting about the characters, uh, let's specifically talk about Kaitel's character and Louise, right? I don't remember Kaitel's character, otherwise I'd call him by his name. Um, but what the, the police detective and Louise both understand is violence. They both understand that once violence is on the table, it is a foregone conclusion violence will happen. Mm-hmm. They understand Chekhov's gun, right? Yeah. If the, Chekhov's gun is just the presence of violence in the world. Louise knows she's going to have to kill this guy. Mm-hmm. She knows. She doesn't want to. And she maybe could have walked away. But as soon as he like keeps pushing, like, I don't think you're going to shoot me. She knows that she's the one that put the gun on the table. She's going to have to use it. Otherwise, yeah. it's going to get taken from her. Yeah, he's going to chase him down in the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. This story ends worse if i don't kill this guy Mm -hmm. just like harvey Cattell understands as soon as you bring in a swat team that team's gonna want to swat that's Mm -hmm. their job you put the name right there on the tin it does what it says if you show up with a paramilitary force they're gonna paramilitary it's what they do it's their job it's the only thing they do don't fucking send these guys after these two ladies like we just need to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that he understands in Louise both. And that's why I think those characters have such an interesting banter, right? They both understand the world more than anybody else in their orbit. And I'm including the other cops. Like, Harvey Keitel is, is this great trope uh, that we get of the smart cop, right? We get plenty of dumb cops in fiction, but, like, he's the McNulty of this bunch, right? Or the bunk of this bunch. We, again, I'm just... Yeah. The wire. We're going to talk about it. Uh, but he's he's the, the like er brain. Even Tobolowski doesn't know how to interact with uh, Shooter McGavin being a chump. Uh, Kaitel knows though. Uh, he immediately knows like what he needs to say to this guy when he's like, "Are you close with your wife?" And he tells the guy, can he, when, as soon as he could tell that uh, Daryl doesn't understand the question, he's like, "Okay, all right, <laughs> you're gonna have to rethink this." Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's maybe what it is. Right? Is this idea? of a character in fiction who I you know I don't think is that far removed from our reality that just understands the realities of violence mm-hmm. right and that can be any kind of character it can be somebody who's uh you know law enforcement or military but it can just be a regular person but i think inter- introducing somebody that understands like once violence is on the table somebody can die and probably will yeah uh, i think that I don't know. I think it's realistic. I, I know that's, that's something you're troubled by, but I don't find it that far-fetched. Yeah. I don't know. I'll, I'll keep thinking on it. But let's, let's move on to the thing that you did want to talk about. Let's talk about that ending. Well, so as uh, Arthur so graciously teed me up for, right, there's a League of Their Own or Green Book that solves the world's problems in, uh, you know, 90 minutes. And then there's Do the Right Thing and Thumb and Louise, which understand that the world's problems are not solved in right. a motion picture. Uh, you can't do it. You know, uh, Sal and uh, Mookie were supposed to hug. The studio wanted to make them hug at the end of the movie. Oh, really? And Spike was like, absolutely not. No. Uh, likewise, I'm sure there's a version of this screenplay or a version of this movie where somebody was like, well, can't they live? What if they What if they just like get away with it? Yeah, imagine. Susan Sarandon's down there in Mexico. She meets her husband, Andy Dufresne. They end up hanging out with Morgan Freeman. <laughs> um, you know, her real-life husband is Tim Robbins. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it'd be perfect. Yeah, I got the joke. But no. Oh, well, for the, for the sake of the dear listener. There you go. Um, I don't know. I like the freeze frame because it doesn't let you, it doesn't let anybody dare to revel in their demise. You mm-hmm. don't get to see their demise. That is a private moment for the two of them because they're the only two at the end of the road. They uh, they carry on their journey till you see their journey to the end. Yeah, and then the rest is for them. I like that they die. I do too. I, I want to say that. I think it's the right call. I, I, so script wise, I like it. I just I, the, the freeze frame the style, and and then the slow motion and Harvey Keitel running and waving. I 
I mean, it echoes Butch and Sundance, though. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's that same ending, and I, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it feels like a direct lift from that. I one. think so. Yeah. Thematically, I mean, I think it's hitting the exact same points, and, yeah. and so they're going out on their terms, and maybe on that's their the rules, thing, yeah. and you know, uh, you you facing down the you know they're facing down the the, the law, and well, and, they understand the thing that. Uh, uh, Butch and Sundance don't, right? Butch and Sundance are dudes and want to go out in a hail of gunfire. Um, Butch and Sundance don't understand that, that means those guys get to win. Mm-hmm. Those guys get to have a narrative they killed Butch and Sundance. Yeah. Nobody killed Thelma and Louise but them, dude. Yeah. Nobody gets... They made the rules and they... Yep. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I like the freeze frame, right? Because I think it, it plays very triumphant. Right. And I think the end of that movie is supposed to play triumphant. Yeah. Um, because it is... a. Uh, I don't know, it's a very optimistic movie in a lot of weird ways. Yeah. And but I think the way it freezes, because if I'm not mistaken, it freezes as the car is in air before it down yeah. falls. Yeah, it doesn't hit the air. Yeah. It, it is like just so it's I, right as the front end is starting to go down. I uh, think there's an yeah. element of them flying and yeah. that ultimate freedom of, of yeah. death again. I, I yeah. think that's part of it as well. Yeah, yeah. Can't cage these birds, baby. I got maybe I need to watch it again. I mean, maybe that's... you should. I can see. Go I, for it. I can see why, right? Because I got really bothered by the uh, the kind of schmaltzy uh, montage at the end of League of Their Own last week. Mm-hmm. So it's weird. Gina Davis films uh, ending with montages. That's uh, I the do fly like... montage was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I do like the montage at the end of this film because you see uh, Gina Davis's transition. Yeah, that's cool. More than anything, I think I love that. Well, and, and again, it, you get to it doesn't go out sad because it's not supposed to be sad. It's I mean, it sucks, and it's it is supposed to be sad in that man. Isn't it awful that society could not be better? Yeah. and allow these women to live. But it is triumphant in that they refuse to play by uh, rules that they did not make. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Other major themes, issues, scenes we want to discuss? Well, I've kind of hit on it already, I think. But I, I think this idea of suburban unrest, uh, and I think a lot yeah. of, uh, you know, we talked about it a long time ago, about 1999. I've been reading this book, so it's been really prescient, this idea of by the end of the 90s, we've kind of moved into this existential dread of the world. And... I think, you know, by the late 80s, I think of Blue Velvet, um, I think we've started to move into this period of kind of suburban unrest, questioning the American dream. And I think that's really what takes us to that existential crisis of an American beauty or what have you. And I, I, I really think that's what this film is playing with is the idea that there's more to life than a, a two-car garage and a picket fence and, and you know, the, the chains and the shackles of a nine-to-five working stiff job and i think this you know movie is really playing with the idea of getting away from that and finding you know the freedom of of living on your terms it's it's hawthorne's lives of quiet desperation right yeah and uh, it does seem to be you know playing into that you know um idea of just you've got to uh, rebellion is the only way to really find life right and uh, you know really kind of a an anarchic kind of advocacy yeah. look we're not telling you to break the law in this podcast what we're saying is if you do you'll feel better <laughs> uh, we won't go. we won't talk about it on the podcast take it from the man who's lived 100 years uh, and some stuff do we we will deny it if you say it's our fault that you did it and we won't talk about it on the show but uh yeah no i Right, because at a certain point, this is fun, to, we get to circle back to Bonnie and Clyde, uh, the boys on Last Podcast and Left have to keep stopping themselves from being like, fuck yeah, metal, because a bunch of people died. Yeah. Don't kill a bunch of people, that's bad. But to a certain extent, you, I think Arthur is right that the 90s were right, uh, man, we got close, and then uh, the world changed, uh, but there's a certain amount of that existential dread of like, oh, we won the Cold War, oh, the world sucks Real bad still. Oh, it wasn't it wasn't the Russians' fault that the world sucks? Oh, it's more nuanced than that? Oh, hell, what are we going to do about that? And yeah, I, I think you're right that uh, film at its best is saying, I don't know, maybe don't work a job you hate. Yeah. It feels like a real pushback against that kind of 80s Wall Street mm-hmm. era of that. Reagan. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I feel like we're coming to an end point. Uh, the only thing I want to talk about is, is this movie a Western? And yes. I think is the answer. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think yeah. the, I mean, I think the, the cinematic West. language. I mean, yeah. 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 Um, so I guess we'll end here. Uh, Arthur makes a great point about the 80s and its machismo and uh, the fallout of that decade that we've lived in in the last 30 years. Uh, the 20-teens, we're coming to an end here. We're about halfway through the last year of this decade. Is this going to be more of a, we're going to look back, is this going to be more of an 80s redux or a 90s redux? What do you think? Ooh, good question. 
Um, I think it is more 90s because I do think it is more critical of those particularly regressive kind of values. It also starts real happy and then ends with uh, everybody realizing that they didn't have anything figured out at the start of the decade. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think just as a culture, we're in a real interesting place as far as our artwork that we're going to see some more fascinating pieces, I think, compared to, I mean, you're already seeing stuff get out and us and, you know, things of that nature, which are going to be more probably in line with something we'd see in the late 90s rather yeah. than something we'd see in the late 80s. I agree. Yeah. Give me another Thelma and Louise. Yeah, I would like, you know what? This yeah. movie, I wouldn't mind a remake. I'd want a woman playing Harvey Cartel's character. Oh, yeah. Make everybody a lady. Yeah. And then two guys are playing Including Thelma and Louise. Shoot, <laughs> oh, and Shooter McGavin playing. You know, yeah. this is a much different movie than Thelma and Louis. It's a way different movie. Theo and Louis? No, Thelma oh, and Louis. Would... Now, Theo and Louis. <laughs> That's, now that's, hold on now, you just sold a movie, sir. Uh, I think that's just the odd couple. Yeah, I think that's, that's good just... point. Uh, I love this movie. I, I can't wait to watch it again, honestly. Well, I, I guess then no other point than... Uh, well, let's render a verdict. Do you put it on the shelf? Oh, hell yeah. Trash? I put this on the shelf so fast. This is one of Ridley Scott's best movies, bar none, period. Uh, this movie is better than Gladiator. This movie is better than... Fuck. Uh, it's not better than Alien, but that's I, I've got a wheel. Blade Runner. This movie's better than Blade the Runner. The Counselor. It's better this than Blade movie, Runner? This movie's better than Blade Runner. That's it. This movie's Body of better Lies. Than, this movie's so much better than Body of Lies. Oh, yeah. Uh, Legend. I've never seen Legend. Legend is amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, this, this, movie's, this movie's great. Well, when we get to Great Scott, we'll, uh, we'll put it, we'll put we'll put it, it to, to the, the test. test. This is at least top five Ridley, five, uh, Ridley Scott for me. Hands down. No question. Fair enough. Fair enough. What do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash? Oh, shelf. Yeah. I, I think just... To Dalton's point earlier, I don't know that there's much like Thelma and Louise. I think it's super prescient and just as relevant today as it was in you know 1991. Uh, and, and just to celebrate Gina Davis's career with this movie, I think this is you know of the, the films we've seen. I think this is the Gina Davis movie, and, and uh, so yeah, I, I'm shelving this guy. And this movie makes me think about how cool my mom could have been if she hadn't wasted her 20s raising me. <laughs> it's so fucking cool yeah, Think about pretty... the last 10 years of us not raising you And what that would have looked like <laughs> Oh my god, it would have been so much worse And a uh, poor job we've all done Oh, Everybody's <laughs> failed me I've failed everyone in, in kind Dustin, uh, have I convinced you of this film's greatness? Uh, no, but I think I'd still shelf it Because there isn't another movie like it um, It is the commercial version of a lot of those Sort of big experimental kind of things um, that you might find like a Lizzie Borden film. And so um, I think for that and for the performances alone, um, it's worth having. Have I? Uh, it's funny. We just said uh, give us another uh, Thelma and Louise. Do you guys know about this movie that uh, Letitia Wright worked on that's coming out this year? No. Uh, Slim and – oh, crap. Give me a second. Um, Dustin, you're on – Queen and Slim. That's what it's called. Queen and oh, Queen Slim. Queen and Slim. Um, it's directed by uh, – uh, uh, a director by the name of Melina Matsukas, I believe is how you say that last name. Mm -hmm. uh, but she's worked on Insecure. Uh, she directed uh, the Formation video. So this is her big uh, breakout, but it was written uh, by Le uh, Lena Waithe. I'm fucked up when I said Letitia, right? Uh, Lena Waithe from um, the, the Shy, from Masters of None. I mean, she's, she's great. Uh, her and this dude named James Frey uh, wrote the screenplay. Um, and it has got Daniel Kaluuya uh, and uh, first-timer Jody Turner-Smith as a couple who goes out on their first date and gets pulled over by a cop, and they have to kill him because he's going to kill them for being black, and then they have to go Ooh. on the run. Oh. Yeah, we got a new Thelma and Louise, yeah, dude. Yeah, that movie sounds yeah, like it's coming out name. this year. Uh, I also I'm so wonder excited. if Thelma and Louise this year doesn't look like an assassination nation, too. Yeah, I think I think if we're ex exclusively talking about um, gender and gendered violence, yeah, I think, I think in this day and age, you have to go bigger, and it is assassination nation. It's weirder and wilder and more in, a, in your face. Uh, whereas I think, yeah, we're just now getting to the point of making a Thelma and Louise that's about a black couple on the run from the, the on the from the, on the run from the law. There we go. Very words cool. are hard. Um, so we got one more of these. Dustin, you, you down for one more? One more. We'll do one more. I, I committed to the marathon. So what is the last Gina Davis? I dream of Gina film. Well, I uh, we're gonna revisit a hero with uh, with a little uh, memory issue, and uh, we're gonna talk a long kiss goodnight. So All right. Excited. Have you yeah. seen this movie? I have not. I have not either. I've only seen it uh, as a child. Scripted by Shane Black and directed by uh, Davis's next husband, uh, following Goldblum. I can't think of his name. Rennie Harlan. Rennie Harlan. Yeah. I heard this film once described as um, Jason Bourne is a woman. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that, that's that's a good primer. Okay. And uh, yeah, some more Sam Jackson. So that'll be fun. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm thrilled. 
So you keep dreaming of Gina, and we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.